0: Now approaching junction at platform passengers report. Please stay on board. Next stop road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo. Technology. What is it all about?
1: You know, I'm choosing to spend billions of dollars on these things. I mean, it's purely a voluntary thing and things like polio and malaria I prioritized and we helped create two new multilateral institutions, which not many have been done since Bretton Woods.
0: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley where every week we take you behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. And We have a very, very, special show for you this week. Why so special, you say? Did you recognize the voice at the top of the show? Uh, You might, because this week we sit down with none other than Bill Gates. Yes, that Bill Gates. Second richest man in the world, Bill Gates. Now, you may recall that last week I drove out to a random ranch in the middle of nowhere to talk to the guys at Zipline. Well, right after I met them and recorded that interview, I raced back home, picked up a bag, then caught a flight to Seattle. It was a bit of a hectic week, but that's what I do for you guys. Anyhow, all that said, this show will be a bit different because the first part of the show is not strictly about tech. It's about the world, really, and how Gates is using his immense resources to solve the world's biggest problems, like polio and malaria and lots of other uh, terrible things. In fact, he'll be hosting a big event in London next week specifically about malaria, which has suddenly reached a crisis point after 15 years of falling infections. And he is funding some mind-bending research that could, he says, wipe it off the face of the globe forever. It involves reprogramming the genes of mosquitoes so that they only reproduce males. Pretty wild. But that is perhaps what you have to do if you are trying to rid the world of a disease that has been stalking humanity since at least 2700 BC. Yes, more than 4,000 years. And just FYI, you won't find this anywhere else. We are the only podcast Gates is doing, so how about that? Anyhow, if you care about the world, I think you'll find the conversation fascinating. The Gates Foundation spends something like $5 billion a year trying to solve the toughest issues in the world. And to hear him talk about how he does it, his approach, how he's convincing the new generation of tech billionaires to think about some of this stuff is super interesting. And of course, the last third or so, we also get into a bunch of tech issues like Facebook, problem with cryptocurrencies and why artificial intelligence's takeover of work as we know it is all but inevitable. If you don't believe me, take from Bill, who I give you right now. Enjoy. So actually a few months ago I um, did this podcast with Steve Ballmer and we were talking about the early days of Microsoft and he said he was complaining to you that he didn't quit Stanford to become a bookkeeper of a 30-person company. And he said the vision then was computer in every home. This was the kind of the long-term goal. So that was the vision. And I was wondering if you could just talk about the foundation and what is the vision that is driving you here?
1: Yeah, the Microsoft vision was empowerment through the magic of software. And the embodiment of that in the early days was a computer on every desk and in every home you know, which at the time was radical and no longer is at all. The foundation is about every child having an equal chance to live, that where you're born shouldn't mean you're 50 times more likely to to die, and that you should grow up in a healthy way. So it's about equal opportunity. And it's also, like Microsoft, taking advantage of the great innovation in science that brings us new tools and better ways of doing delivery. And it was very stunning to me to find out how some of these health things, diseases like malaria, were getting almost no investment at all because the countries that had them didn't have either the resources or the capacity to build the new tools. And so you know, even though I thought my philanthropy would be kind of on the margin uh, that all the high-impact stuff would have been funded, particularly in global health, we found that the big stuff was not funded.
0: So in a few days, you're going to be in London hosting this malaria event. And the last time I believe you had something like this was seven years ago, talking to your folks in this program. Why now, in 2018, are you doing this?
1: Yeah, for our various diseases, there's all sorts of events. Ten years ago was when we had a big event that we really talked about. The Goal for malaria should be eradication.
0: And that was radical at the time.
1: At the time, yeah. Even today, there are people who resist that. And it's fair to say that you can't do eradication with the existing tools. So you have to assume not only intensification of delivering what we have now and somewhat additional resources, but you have to assume new tools, particularly in this field, the old tools wear out. That is, the insecticides the mosquitoes evolve around the insecticides and the malaria parasite plasmodium evolves around the drugs and so if you stand still you actually go back to the peak which was over a million deaths a year 1.2 million was the peak and there's other than innovation you will find yourself back there because the susceptible populations are growing quite dramatically because the burden is in developing countries, the majority of people in commonwealth countries, but overwhelmingly it's, it's young children in Africa who die of malaria. Yeah, well, so that's
0: one of the, what makes it so pernicious, right? There's obviously all kinds of preventable things happening in Africa from tuberculosis, et cetera, but malaria specifically hits the young.
1: That's right. The four big killers of young children are malaria, pneumonia, diarrhea, and then a variety of things that kill you in your first thirty days, neonatal death, including prematurity, is a contributor to that. And so Africa's the last place where you have lots of locations, including where I was last week, northern Nigeria, where over fifteen percent of the kids die before the age of five and fifteen percent. Uh, worldwide it's five percent. Now, when we got started in the year two thousand, it was ten percent. So when we've gone from ten million of kids a year dying to now 5 million kids a year dying. So it's pretty miraculous. And new vaccines for diarrhea, pneumonia, bed nets, and sprain for malaria, and a new generation of medicines, the artemis and combination therapy, those are the key reasons, the big reasons why that death rate's gone from 10 million a year to five million a year. Even though the zero to five cohort, the total actually is, is very flat. But the portion that's in poor countries just keeps going up and up. And so that's an adverse mix shift. And yet we cut the death rate in half again. You have to make huge progress in malarious regions. Malaria will be a third of the deaths. And is there anything you've learned from polio? I think you've said this this could be the year that polio is eliminated. It could be Uh the year of the last case. The term eliminated, formally, is something they give you when you've gone three years with no cases. And we still have active transmission. We've had five cases so far this year, all in Afghanistan. But we've had positive environmental samples, which is sewage sampling, in both Pakistan and Afghanistan. One of the big reasons I was in Nigerian Chad last week was we had a case there 16 months ago. And that's the last case we've seen other than Afghanistan and Pakistan. So making sure we get up into the northeast, the Borno, Boko Haram area around Lake Chad, and really see if there's cases up there and vaccinate the kids. You know, there's only three countries that haven't been declared free. Now, as long as it's in any country, it can spread back. But we want to make sure we do a super good job making sure it's out of Africa. And then it's possible this will be the last year that even... Pakistan or Afghanistan would have cases. The quality of the campaigns keeps improving. You know, we do satellite photography to understand where the populations are, where people are moving. In Africa, we've used tracking of the vaccination teams to see where they're going. We've had to bring a lot of innovation. Absolutely, the lessons of polio will be very helpful. In fact, the disease modeling group we created when we declared this malaria thing, some of my scientific friends who had been involved at Microsoft said, hey, let's build a modeling group. And we built this phenomenal modeling group that can look at how tough it is to get rid of malaria.
0: Is that taking advantage of things like advances in machine learning and oh, yeah. algorithms? And-, and we're having
1: to advance the algorithms. It's amazing. They they use cloud supercomputing. They use big data, gathering data sets by sending people out with mobile phones. They take the satellite data. They take the weather data. Because malaria is, it's in the mosquitoes and it's in the humans. And you can only get to zero if you clear the mosquitoes and you clear the humans. The key bond actually is the humans. You know, in the U.S. and in Europe, that's what happened is you went through low seasons where the number of humans who were infected over the low season got lower and lower and eventually hit zero. That's very hard to do in central africa because the number of mosquitoes and therefore what they call the, the biting rate the EIR is super high you have places where kids are being bitten 30 40 times a year with a infected mosquito cuz mosquitoes the numbers are mind blowing how cuz they have a quick generation time when the rainy season hits you get literally hundreds of billions of mosquitoes and hundreds they're of out billions. there yeah which means the reinfection rates can propagate the disease pretty easily. This is not easy to eradicate. And the year I was born was the first attempt at doing the eradication. In fact, because that had failed, when people came and said, let's do smallpox, there was a lot of skepticism. In fact, the head of the WHO sort of didn't want to be involved and forced a bunch of U.S. CDC people to come in and you know, be responsible for what was expected to be a failure. Of course, it became the only known case of the eradication of a a human disease. Uh, This
0: might sound like a weird question, but why do you care? You know, there's plenty of rich people who don't make this a mission. And I mean, we were talking earlier uh, with one of your colleagues about how much money goes to foreign aid, and it's something like 1% or 3% or 4%.
1: Yeah, it's under 5% of U.S. philanthropy is going to poor countries. People like World Vision do some of that. Some of the big foundations do, but... Overwhelmingly, it's spent in in the U.S. and you'd expect that to some degree. I'm a little surprised more people don't get involved because the impact of money spent well in poor countries is Huge, much right? higher than the marginal impact you can get in a in a developed country. Now we do a lot of work here in the U.S. We do like 800 million a year, mostly around education, college scholarships, K through 12 charter schools, a bunch of things. But where we're having the most impact is internationally, particularly where we can invent new tools and then get those new tools out to all the kids. Why well, is this important to you? Why do you care? I think that the human value that parents shouldn't have their children die is pretty universal. And the idea that the world is very rich and we understand all the science, and yet people are very moved by you know a disaster that kills a few thousand, which of course is horrific. But we're talking about millions a year. You know, the idea that we've gone from 10 million or dying to 5 million or dying, you won't find many people who know that. So it's kind of weird in a way that, you know, what's the report card for humanity, how it takes care of itself? You know, there's a few basic things like death and, you know, literacy. And some things are hard to measure, like quality of life, freedom. But death is... Actually, pretty you know, we had to yeah. invest and make sure the measurement was good and t- to do the attribution of, okay, what's causing that diarrhea? How much of that's malaria? Even within malaria, you have Vivax and falciparum. But So to me, the idea that you can do this and have this huge impact, it's very exciting. It should be done. There is a history of people like Rockefeller doing the Green Revolution. There's a guy named Jim Grant, ran UNICEF, and he took vaccination rates from about 20 percent to about 80 percent. So arguably, either Jim Grant or people who invented vaccines, like a again, Morris Hillelman, who invented at Merck more than anyone else, you know, arguably Grant and Hillelman are the people who did the smallpox things, or Borlaug, that's his little statue behind you there. Arguably, they saved more lives than anyone who's ever lived. So this idea that we can take our advance understanding and our extra resources and help out people in the poorest countries who still are dealing with these tragic consequences and eventually get to the point where it really is equal that the chance of a kid dying, you know, sort of globally is, is under 2%. That's achievable in my, my lifetime.
0: Right now we're kind of in almost a new gilded age because I'm based in San Francisco and I cover that world of Silicon Valley, et cetera, and a lot of the fortunes that are being built are growing incredibly rapidly. Do you think there is a kind of an obligation for that generation to give back?
1: Well, the way capitalistic societies work is, you know, you pay taxes at a certain level, which ideally are very progressive. They're not in the United States. Even the idea of whether there should be an estate tax is debated, and I'm the most pro-various progressive things like that. Yes, we're far richer today than ever. The world, the United States, you know, the tech community is sort of the extreme example of that. You know, the most valuable companies. Even in my little neighborhood, I'm not the richest guy. So, are you not? Oh yeah, no, you're not. You're not. As <laughs> no, no, recently. <laughs> no, little old Medina is doing well. Uh, so it's good news that now we can take this. And I do think the successful tech people are moving to do philanthropy as much as any other sector. There isn't a sense that it's a dynasty and your kid's going to run the company. There is a sense that there's an element of why you versus some other brilliant engineer, you know, why the things that came together with network effects, you know, you were yeah. able to be there at that time. You know, so there's a sense that a combination of society you live in and a certain element of luck brought it together. And so. I do think of all the sectors, if philanthropy in general is going up, but I'm optimistic that almost all the people who make huge money in technology, that they will be serious about philanthropy. Yeah, because we
0: were speaking earlier, talking about the giving pledge, and that was eight years ago. Was that we you, started it, yeah. Yeah, with Warren Buffett, and it started out with you two, and now it's, I think there's 175 people yep. who have pledged to give half of their fortune away. Are we
1: starting to see the effect of that? Philanthropy is a bit of an isolated thing usually. And often, whatever you make your money in, you come down a learning curve. And you know you spend decades and you have a real sense of, hey, is, is this a good software team? Is this a good piece of software? And you have the market there to correct you when you're wrong. And it's sort of a first-class truth that the stuff you do is desirable with market feedback, in philanthropy, the things you're trying to fix are hard to fix. Even the measurement of what you're trying to achieve is very difficult. And remember, philanthropy is very small. You know government is anywhere from thirty to fifty percent of an economy. Philanthropy, even in the US, where it's the largest, is two percent. Worldwide, it's under one percent. So it has to play a fairly special role often being able to pioneer something like Green Revolution that is more risk-oriented or just a normal government official wouldn't think that it's theirs to do. And so our foundation, even beyond the Giving Pledge, we're hosting philanthropists every day. There's people you know coming up to talk with us about education or disease or research or things that we're doing. And that's very explicit that we want to be a resource, you know, without saying that people should pick the same things we've done. If they want to, you know, let's work together. Uh, But the breadth of philanthropy is a a big part of its strength.
0: And can you talk about just, uh, you mentioned the difficulty of measuring success, but when you talk about just the very basic saving lives or preventing death or child death, what that does to demographics and how that can be quantified economically.
1: Well, the, the most amazing thing about improving health is that it reduces population growth, and that's completely against common sense. You think, okay, if you have kids live, then you have more kids. But the key thing you're affecting is that parents want an extremely high chance of having two or more kids survive into adulthood to be able to be there and take care of them. And so in any case, and the correlations on this are mind-blowing, any case where you have high child-to-death rate, you have high population growth. There's never been a country in the world that has decent health and high population growth. That country does not exist. Uh, yeah. The, I mean, the developed countries are to the point where most of them are actually— Japan is shrinking. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, shrink, yeah. Well, Italy's shrinking. Russia's shrinking. Uh, very few are even growing at very, very small levels. Sweden, France are slightly above replacement level, but trivially above replacement level. So if you look at it, as the world goes from 7 billion to 11 billion, that's going to be Asia going from 4 billion to 5, and Africa from 1 to 4. The rest of the world net shrinks a little bit.
0: 1 to 4.
1: Yeah, so Africa's that is your best illustration, and it's the poorest parts of Africa even within Africa or even within Nigeria, the poorest parts of Nigeria, you know, there's one country left where women have more than uh, six children on average, and that's Niger. But that whole region, which is your 15% death region, that's also the highest fertility rates in the world are exactly where 15% of the kids die before the age of five. But the correlations are super strong. Now, you, you also get a correlation, too, as you improve health, as you um, educate women, as you increase GDP, but the one that clo- most closely tracks uh, is the reducing the infant mortality rate. Really? Yeah. So that that you know non common sense thing actually was very helpful to us. We mostly did family planning our first two or three years. The health stuff. It was till we really knew this non intuitive uh, fact. That's what let us go full bore because the idea of can you feed, can you educate, can you maintain stability, you know, in Africa, it we're going to have to do an amazing job helping African countries to achieve the model that we want. Nigeria well, – I have lots of Nigeria facts since I spent last week there uh, – you know, will be the third most populous country by 2050. It'll go from 191 million to 411 million. So it will pass Indonesia and the United States uh, to go And that's already baked in. That plus or minus about 3% because the the, the birth cohort, the, the age group that has children, that's already locked in. That behavior doesn't change very quickly. Now, getting out new family planning tools... The 2050 number, you can't affect a lot. The 2100 number, which is over a billion, that number— In Nigeria. In Nigeria, that number is still subject to meaningful variation if you get the word out. And, you know, there's many countries like Mexico, Iran, that actually surprised people, uh, even India, how quickly they went from high fertility down With
0: prosperity.
1: With various elements of prosperity, yeah. And that's how people study, like, hey, did TV slightly affect it more because you're seeing a social norm of smaller families? You know, did family planning tools being available in counseling? And we're very involved in that. As I say, that actually predates our being huge in health. We had to get our mind around the fact that this was how to minimize the challenges Africa and the world would, would face population-wise.
0: Right. Yeah, so it's dispi- a year, so despite it, the noise, at least for now, things are...
1: Well, when you say your framework is, hey, is the net benefit to America alone enough to justify this, then you're taking out all the humanitarian moral element. But even so, if all you care about is not having to send the military as much and not having diseases come to your shores as much and having a a world economy that has Africa participate in the world economy. Even that narrow view, you can more than justify just on the pure benefit to American citizens. And I imagine you make that argument, have to make that argument a lot. I'm a huge proponent of it because I, I get to go out and see, you know, I'm choosing to spend billions of dollars on these things. So people think, hey, are you a serious person? Are you good at math? Do you hire people who look hard at these things? I mean, it's purely a voluntary thing. And things like polio and malaria I prioritized. And we helped create two new multilateral institutions, which not many have been done since Bretton Woods. We've had Gavi, which is the thing that makes sure all the kids of the world get vaccines, and Global Fund, which has the three diseases, HIV being the biggest, but HIV, malaria, and TB, making sure that developing countries get access to the life-saving tools for all three of those diseases. And those both Gavi and Global Fund have been an unbelievable success, creating new institutions and getting them managed well, and it's a miracle. Most of that, even though we're funders of it, most of it's European and U.S. government funding that, that makes those things work.
0: And on malaria, we're at a critical point, aren't we? Rates have been going down for 15 years until last year. That's right. And now it's on its way back up.
1: Measuring cases, the error bars are always fairly high. But there's no doubt the last two or three years, a combination of things have meant that we haven't made progress. One is the resistance, mosquito resistance to the insecticide, the pyroids, which is what we use on the bed nets, and the resistance to the actelic, which is what we use for the the sprain. The second thing is that you always have to get those tools out there. The bed nets tear. You have to remind people to use them. Then you have actually a fair bit of weather variation where in Africa, rain is your enemy. The last couple of years, we we have gone backwards. The good news is that we have a, a new generation of bed net, which is a dual insecticide Costs a little bit more money, but we'll get that down over time. And then we have a new indoor residual spray. The first one to be approved in 40 years is now available. And it even lasts longer. There's a newer generation coming that we're working with the chemical companies on that would last more than a year. And that would be a huge advance because then you can just have full-time people just going around and doing the spraying.
0: But to get to the promised land, to eradication, you need some kind of technological, biotechnological leap?
1: The two that are the most unclear are, will we get a vaccine with long duration? We have a vaccine, but it has short duration. But we have novel constructs that people at Oxford and others are are working on. And can we get this uh, gene drive, sort of genetic editing uh, of mosquito genome, this thing that, If it worked well, it would either cut the populations for a period of time, which would be huge. Because it
0: effectively neuters them?
1: One approach is you make all the offspring be male. Another approach is you make it harder for them to carry the parasite. The parasite evolves to avoid the mosquito. It actually bursts through the gut out into the proboscis. So it actually injures the mosquito quite a bit. So it can be there when it sticks that blood straw in. And that's part of its life cycle. It's a super complicated life cycle. It's amazing that something like this evolved. So it circulates in the blood. Then it goes to the liver. It has to do all this crazy stuff in the liver. Then it comes out and enters this very... like alien. Yeah. And then it switches to this sexual stage called the gametocyte. And then it has to be around to be sucked back up by a long-lived female that has to live long enough to both take a blood meal from somebody who's infected and then go and take a blood meal from somebody who's not infected. So it's actually a very small part of the females that live long enough to go through this cycle because if you reduce the average life of females, you get a fourth power benefit of that lifetime reduction. And it's partly why bed nets have been, until perithroid resistance, why they were so incredible. I mean, the, it is amazing what happens. Their species, subspecies called Gambia just collapses.
0: Is this harder than Microsoft?
1: You know, Microsoft, you know, we did a lot of things that worked. We did a lot of things that didn't work. It's the same type of intellectual challenge where you're hiring very smart people. You're taking risks. You have projects that you won't know if it was a good idea for sometimes a decade, like the HIV vaccine work we're doing, or this whole eradication thing. That's more than a decade. I mean, if things go well, this is a 20 to 25-year project with all sorts of milestones of success and failure You know, I've had to learn a lot of new science. We're more dependent on our partnership with governments in these poor countries. If you've just been to Nigeria, you're thinking, wow, how do we raise the capacity of the government to run a primary health care system in a good way? So it has different challenges, but I'd say it's hard to compare in a black and white way.
0: This organization is built to address kind of the world's hardest problems, but how do you choose your problems?
1: Well, in general, it... Somebody has an idea that saves lives, saves a child's life for less than $1,000. Know, I'm super interested. That's it. Basically, all the health stuff we do is at at, at that threshold or below. You know, some of the nutrition stuff we do is way below. Is the $1,000 particularly No, I'm just giving you relevant. a sense. Yeah, I right, mean, right. It's what it turns out to be. That That's not an input. That's an output where you sort the most effective things. The term in the art is dollars per disability adjusted life year saved, which comes from the, this incredible world development report that the bank put out in 1993 that was really, I didn't read it until much later, but it was a key part of my education in terms of thinking through how we would do this stuff. And we do a lot of non-infectious disease stuff. We do tobacco, cancer stuff for hepatitis B because a vaccine protects you. We're trying to get HPV vaccine out to all the kids of the world, cervical cancer, prevention tool we are resource constrained now i wouldn't have said that you know six years ago as we were just building our teams and getting going now we have great teams we have finite resources you know i wish we could spend more on an hiv vaccine more on a malaria vaccine and so we do these two weeks of strategy reviews and then decide okay we currently spend a bit over five billion a year how do you allocate that in the the most impactful way
0: How did the the gift or the partnership with Warren Buffett change the way that you approach these problems beyond simply just he gave you, pledged a bunch of money?
1: Well, in truth, Warren's influence on us, which is huge because you know he's been a good friend, he sets an example of how he thinks about the world and how he enjoys things and tries to simplify things, You know, he doesn't come from the engineering domain, but he's a very precise thinker and likes to teach people about how he sees things. I got to know him in 1991, and over time he, you know, shaped my view of things. And even when we were planning the foundation, I did a presentation to a meeting he had with friends, and, you know, I got really excited explaining to them that, you know, this zero to five age and how you could do miraculous things so you know we had input and and guidance and then through a series of events he chose to give significant percentage of his wealth through our foundation you know there's only three trustees of the foundation melinda warren and myself so he's not day-to-day involved right he comes out and you know we're always seeking his his advice and i'm you know i see warren talk to warren all the time
0: right I know that the focus, at least in the U.S., is on education and then around the rest of the world is public health. I was wondering if, if you have looked at the situation with guns, guns in schools here, because that's, that's kind of an intersection of those two worlds as something that might be addressable.
1: You know, every death is super, super tragic. Fortunately, there's not 5 million deaths in schools with guns. There's 33,000 deaths with guns. Most of those are are suicide, 21,000 of those. And most is that are, right? Yeah. The majority of all gun deaths in the U.S. are suicide.
0: I did not know uh, that.
1: The mass shooting, it's a very small percentage. That's like on average 600 per year, but it's awful. Every one of these things yeah. is completely awful. You know, we don't have a vaccine for that. It's kind of not necessarily in the wheelhouse. Possibly. No, it's not our our expertise. In the giving pledge, there are way more things than we could either in terms of our voice or our expertise or our money. So once you pick, the ideal is in terms of really building up partner organizations and you know, being willing to do things that take a long, long time. But you're going to be there. And you know, So global health and U.S. education are the things we'll do. Can I
0: ask you a couple tech questions? Sure. AI. Everybody's an AI company. It's AI everything, machine learning, et cetera. It seems that there are a few companies that are working on this idea of a generalized AI—the kind of the recreation of a superhuman brain. Do you think that's realistic, and is that worrying?
1: You know, there's no easy, short answers to these things. Okay. The ultimate challenge is that you know, evolution has created an amazing piece of software, and you know, the more we learn about human capabilities, the more impressive it is. A few things, like vision and speech understanding, now the software equivalent of that has matched those human capabilities. You know, game playing that was true for a lot of games but not for, say, Go, and now DeepMind with AlphaGo is significantly better than the best human player. So, yes, AI software is being developed to help us invent cancer drugs and to run cybersecurity algorithms that can't be outsmarted. That software is very powerful. You know, is it more or less powerful than bioterrorism or a nuclear weapon? You can argue. But whichever humans have that, you want to make sure that, you know, they're using it for good things. It will free up labor. You know, what are the unmet needs? Smaller class size special needs kids, you know, older people who are lonely. As you free up that labor, there's some amazing unmet needs. We're not at the point where you'll say, hey, what is there besides work that people choose to do? Because right. you will go from a labor supply constrained era to a case where you don't have that shortage.
0: And do you think just that is an inevitability?
1: Yes, that's an inevitability. Predicting when, uh, as people like to point out, Kurzweil, Bostrom, uh, Musk, it's potentially a nonlinear phenomena that something that's smarter knows how to invent something that's smarter that knows how to invent something that's smarter. So the recursion creates these nonlinear exponential effects. That's why it makes the prediction so difficult. We're not close today. The leading AI companies include Microsoft. Google, if you had to pick one, they're doing the most. But, you know, there's quite a few.
0: And so this idea of a robot tax or something like that, do you think that's going to be necessary at some point? Or well, universal basic income or some, some kind of way to...
1: Well, those are different things.
0: Yeah. I guess to subsidize, the, somehow subsidize life for humans.
1: The idea of the safety net is not a new thing your safety net, the question is, who qualifies it for it, and what level of benefits does it generate? Generally, even in rich countries today, the safety net expects that if you can work, you will work. It's not, there's not some hugely decent level of income where you don't have to work at all. We're not rich enough today. You know, we still want, to have smaller class sizes and we want social workers and to reach out to old people and, and help, you know, have aids for handicapped kids. And so we don't have this notion that, hey, go ahead and do nothing and you'll, you'll be totally taken care of. Eventually, you will get to that level of wealth and it will be because of innovations, many of which will be under this AI heading, and that'll be great. Then you'll have all sorts of philosophical questions about purpose. You know, work won't be the central, almost religious activity in the world of shortage, which is, is our world today. And if anyone doubts that, just go to Africa and look around.
0: I'd be re- remiss just given the news cycle, if I didn't ask you about Facebook, just the treatment of data and whether there is a fix for something that has the data of 2 billion people in Is there an effective technological way to police that? Or is it more of a philosophical question around how you treat that data?
1: You know, your credit card company sees all the money you spend. Your cell phone company sees every GPS location you go to and which radio towers your, your phone connects up to. The information is often very, very good. You know, when there's a terrorist, you know, people say, hey, was there a camera around? You know, hey, we so you got see, lucky, yeah, right, you know, Oklahoma right. City, there was a like bank camera across the way, and so they had a uh, shut and dried case. You know, we still wanna collect taxes, we still wanna stop terrorism. So this general issue of, should the state be blind to communications or financial transactions, or should the state be careful on behalf of justice, tax collection, safety, you know, strike a r- the right balance of when it can access information, how it used that information. You really have two privacy issues we're working on in parallel. There's your privacy relative to the government, the sovereign, who has – you expect to do certain things. Right. And there literally are people who think anonymous currency, the money launderer, yeah. tax collector's yeah. purview – that that's a very good thing. I've taken- Well, let me just ask
0: you about it now. So you're not a fan of cryptocurrency, at least- Of
1: anonymous currencies, no. Why? They're very expensive. Every Bitcoin that everybody owns was paid just to run the transaction mechanism. It's the most expensive payment switch that was ever created. It's very high latency. It's subject to breakdowns with no ability to- reboot itself and potentially pernicious as well if you if you if you want to collect taxes if you want to see money laundering if you want to make uh, kidnapping as difficult as it was when you had to physically transfer the currency to people as i look at it anonymous currency if you're a fentanyl buyer it's a big win for you your payment isn't seen who is the user besides speculators, of anonymous currencies. The U.S. has had an ability to see things, even to do things like say, okay, we'll tell SWIFT not to take oil payments. You know, maybe the world just decided all wiretapping was foolish and all bank account auditing was foolish. The world will make a decision whether that was all just a mistake for the sovereign to be able to, to know what was the financing of that terrorist organization? Because the technology exists to both make things transparent to government, and the technology exists to make it so nobody can see anything. It's complicated. Even I would say is that, hey, government's got to do its job. It's complicated. How you make sure that's not subject to abuse? You know, how you draw the line? Why is London accepting of cameras, and some other cities are not? Well, I think you've got to give the IRA the yeah. causation yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh,
1: for that. And I do think in terms of petty crime and a lot of things, it's been net beneficial. There's probably somebody who thinks who's against it. Every country will make their own choices. Then you have the private sector, which strangely in the U.S., at least up until now, have been more worried about the government knowing about them than the private sector because the private sector knows a lot about you. And not just Facebook knows a lot about you. People who you know, store all your email Google,
0: know a lot. you yeah. It's a
1: pretty digital world and has been you know, with checking accounts and credit cards for a long time. So I hope we get into the constructive debate phase of these Facebook discussion meal? as opposed yeah. to the, hey, these guys didn't do what they, they should. The boundary between real news and fake news, who judges that? The boundary between hate speech and free speech, who judges that? Even putting aside the transparency thing to governments, which relative to most people a differentiated view, these issues of how a social platform, what it should allow, what it shouldn't allow, you know I think those are some very t- tough issues. And given that these are global tools, will there likely be global alignment on some of these things? Probably not.
0: I have one last question I always ask. What was your worst day of work?
1: Well, my whole career, there were elements of the DOJ trial with Microsoft that were probably my least fun days of work. Or, you know, when somebody really smart decided to quit and I was trying to convince them, and if I failed to convince them, uh, you know, there's lots of ups and downs. You know, people find bugs in our software and we have to figure out what went on and apologize for it. At the foundation, it's more... You know, this polio thing so much hangs in the balance. And every day I'm, you know, checking on that. You know, you have a certain amount of energy to really care about some things, make sure they're done super well. You know, now they're they're mostly about the global health work.
0: Right. I wish you luck. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. And that is all the time we have. I want to extend a very big thank you to Bill Gates for taking the time in between his meetings with, you know... Nigerian billionaires and the French president and next week, I think the queen to talk to little old Danny in the Valley. Um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation and we will be back next week. And in the meantime, rate us, review us. It helps. Please do it. And I'm on Twitter at Danny Fortson in the times every weekend online at thetimes.co.uk and via email at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk Have a good weekend and we'll talk to you next week. you control which apps you share your exact location with there's more to iphone
1: planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices